America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. 77 WABC, making AM radio great again. Joining us now is one of the most respected political reporters in the country. Uh, Mark Caputo uh, has written for the Miami Herald, uh, for Politico, uh, more recently worked for NBC, uh, and now is a national political reporter with The Messenger. Uh, he is widely respected among Republicans, Democrats, independents, uh, and everyone in the business as a old-fashioned, straight-down-the-middle reporter who, to my uh, long experience with him, has never brought bias or prejudice to his reporting. Uh, he is someone for whom I have enormous respect, uh, and I particularly respect his analysis uh, to the Roger Stone Show, Mark Caputo. Thanks, Roger. I'm, I'm blushing by the intro. Uh, I should probably hang up now because uh, it can't get any better. <laughs> Good point. So uh, you are Florida-based. Uh, you have uh, obviously from the very beginning watched this cage match between former President Donald Trump uh, and uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. What, in your opinion, is the current status uh, of the Trump-DeSantis rivalry? I mean, we're, we are victims, we are prisoners of the polling, right, uh, in that there's so much polling out there, and it still has the veneer of science, and I still happen to believe a lot of it, although I understand there are margins of error, and I understand how to apply them properly. The fact is, is this, this race is just a blowout. Now, maybe things can change. I'm not saying the race is over, but I, I think in a, a recent podcast interview with someone a, a few months ago, I said that. DeSantis has one foot in the grave. You know, he's not all the way in. But, but since then, you know, he hasn't gotten that foot out. And I think what DeSantis is learning is what was learned uh, in, in lesser fashion in 2016, is that Donald Trump is a cultural figure. And that's really difficult to beat in the Republican primary. Uh, you know, he obviously, him being a Republican, I'm not saying he's impossible to beat as president. And Ron DeSantis is still a politician. And again, that's not to say that Donald Trump is not a politician. Sorry, I had my alarm on to talk to you. You heard it ring in the background. And so what are conventional political attacks that would normally work or criticisms that would normally work on a fellow politician, they're not landing on Trump. So that's one thing. So uh, Ron DeSantis' biggest problem in the Republican primary is the fact that he's running against Donald Trump, a former president who's essentially a non-incumbent incumbent or incumbent non-incumbent, depending on how you want to look at it. That's number one. And then DeSantis' second problem is, is DeSantis himself. I think he had a number of uh, missteps in the way he, he understood how the electorate thinks, 
how to manage the media. And the combination of those two things have made things difficult. Now, one thing that's pretty clear, and even the DeSantis campaign is acknowledging it, and a lot of people on the, in Trump world as well, is once the indictments, plural, of Donald Trump started to roll, it just changed the trajectory of the race and the gut instinct of a lot of Republicans. There was a real rally around the chief effect for Trump, which was people were saying, we can't leave a man on the field. Republicans, and I'm not saying they're right, by and large view these indictments of Donald Trump as lawfare, as political persecution, etc. And Trump, to great effect, is employing this rhetorical device where at his speeches he's saying, they're not after me, they're after you, and I'm in the way. And that's resonating with people. And don't get me wrong, Donald Trump is not winning a majority of the vote. It is a crowded primary. But in a two-man race, according to the internal polling from DeSantis's own political committee or an affiliated political committee, Donald Trump is still beating him one-on-one in polling in First in the Nation, Iowa. So that's just a difficult, difficult candidate to beat. And so far, we haven't really seen DeSantis be able to just get out of that dynamic and to change the race. I mean, the reality is, is in order to change the game against Donald Trump, you have to be a game changer. And so far, and it's getting late, DeSantis hasn't shown that he's a game changer. Uh, It seems to me that the rationale for the DeSantis candidacy Uh, was based on exactly the opposite of what has happened. This idea that once Trump was charged in these various jurisdictions with various charges, uh, that his his support would collapse, that his money would collapse, that, uh, that Republicans would view him as just having too much baggage uh, and that there would Ron DeSantis be standing as a, a cleaner uh, younger alternative. Uh, and that premise turns out to be entirely wrong. In fact, uh, what has happened, I, while I admit it is counterintuitive, I agree with your analysis that all of this has turbocharged uh, the Trump candidacy in a way that could never have been seen in advance. That said, I also think that Governor DeSantis let the expectations for himself get way out of whack. Uh, he embraced this as if he was the front runner when mm-hmm. he was never really the front runner. Yeah, true. I, you know, I, I can't tell if I disagree or agree with your analysis about what the DeSantis campaign thought about the legal challenges. Right. There, there's some truth to that, and there, there, there isn't. And that's just based on my conversations with him over time. But where you're definitely right is their miscalculation was the idea that all you had to do was get Ron DeSantis in front of Republicans. And once they heard him, and they heard about his awesome record delivering all of these great things in Florida, and he was able to reinforce the notion that he could do this on a national scale, and he could make conservatism great again, that Ron DeSantis would beat Donald Trump. And that turned out to be wrong. Now, the lawsuits played a role in that, or better said, the legal challenges played a role in that, in boosting Trump. 
but the the flaw in their logic was this idea that that DeSantis was the right sort of messenger for that. Number one, like when you listen to Ron DeSantis speak, he's got a high-pitched voice that doesn't sound very good to a lot of people. And he doesn't employ a lot of humor, and he doesn't seem to be very happy on the campaign trail. (laughs) And some people are going to disagree with this, but the reality is Donald Trump is perceived by a lot of Republican voters as being kind of funny, right? And he's able to deploy humor with devastating effect. And I am not excusing the idea of joking about Nancy Pelosi's husband being hit with a hammer and all that stuff, just to be very clear. Uh, But DeSantis isn't able to kind of hold a crowd in the same way. And on the substance of his speeches, it, 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 it starts to sound like this book report from a really smart kid. Like, well, I did this in Florida, and then 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 I did this in Florida. And it just goes on and on and on like that. And incidentally, on Friday when I was in California at the California GOP's convention, DeSantis gave a speech in the evening, and that's all it was, was just this exhaustive list of all the things he did in Florida. There was nothing about, hey, here's how I'm going to prove your life, right? Here's how I'm going to make things better. Or if there was there, it was just drown out by this just sort of laundry list of of the great things he did in Florida. So there's that. And then his speeches are filled with this jargon. There are all these acronyms. Critical race theory, CRT, you know, DEI, ESG. And he goes through all these things. And so the idea that all you had to do is get Ron DeSantis in front of people, conservatives are going to listen to this, they're like, oh, great, their hearts are going to go pitter-patter. That's not the case. Like, the, the Republican Party is not all college-educated intellectuals who are reading the National Review and, and want to know about emotional and so, you know, environmental and social governance, right? And Trump is just better at speaking at that base level. Now, again, maybe things will change. What is it, October? January 15th is the first in the nation Iowa caucus. We'll see. But so far, the trajectory of the race and the performance of the two candidates hasn't really shown that things are going to really change. Well, one thing is clear, just putting aside uh, the question of whether everything Donald Trump has ever said was appropriate, he does look like he himself is having fun. Uh, He he does look like a happy warrior. He looks like he's enjoying himself. Whereas Ron DeSantis, kind of like Jeb Bush before him, uh, acts like a man who's there because he has to be, not because he wants to be. Uh, and, and then there is, uh, as we've talked about, uh, there's a likability factor. He's he's most definitely a wonk. Nobody's saying he's dumb. He's not dumb by any means. He's obviously uh, 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 highly educated. He's a very smart guy. But you're right. He cuts to the shorthand just assuming that the voters know what all those acronyms uh, and all that policy stuff means, where Trump. No matter what you think, he speaks the common people's language. In other words, he talks the way people talk around the dinner table. Uh, And I think that is what makes him more relatable. Mark, you had a story uh, about uh, major Republican donors uh, calling Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, who seems to be having a little bit of a rally in the polls, still light years behind Donald Trump, but uh, pulling ahead of DeSantis in a number of uh, key states and in a few national surveys. Do you see a DeSantis-Haley-Stop-Trump alliance uh, in the future? 
I mean, I don't, because ultimately, this is a competition between individuals. And so it's very difficult for politicians to say, you know what, let's band together to beat the other guy, because everyone wants to beat everyone else. And the dynamic you're seeing in the 2020 race is very similar to what you're seeing in the 2016 primary, which is the prisoner's dilemma. The more people that are in the race, the easier it is for Donald Trump to win, because Donald Trump has this unshakable base of 25% whose value becomes proportionally increased because everyone else is dividing up the non-Trump vote. Understand, 25% is his base, right? That those are the people who walk through walls and chew the bricks for him and the brick dust and the mortar. You know, that's how he's up to 40, 45, even 50%, because he can just build on that base. And, you know, you have six, seven, eight, 10, 12 candidates who are running against him. Well, they're just going to divide up all the other stuff. And the prisoner's dilemma, what's good for the prisoner is bad for the, the entire jail population. And that's exactly what you're seeing with, you know, Haley and DeSantis and all of these people running. But, you know, kind of more to the point with those two is that they're not going to be there. Their campaign managers are going to be there. And they're going to be presenting to this group of billionaires, the American Opportunity Alliance. You know, they would like to stop Donald Trump. But the problem they have is, well, it's Donald Trump. And a lot of these billionaires are sort of out of step with the base of the party. I mean, in part because the, the party has a working-class sentiment to it that's more pronounced now in the Trump years. So the idea that the billionaires are backing someone else, well, that's not necessarily great messaging for that someone else. And then there's just kind of the, the fact that, like, you know, Ron DeSantis actually delivered on conservative things, which conservatives want in the party, but the billionaires don't. So, for instance, Ken Griffin, the billionaire financier was angry at Ron DeSantis for passing a six-week abortion ban. Well, you know what? A lot of conservatives actually want that. So there are just kind of these, these mismatches between what the billionaire class wants, what the base Republican want, and also the billionaires can't get out of each other's way. The reality is, is if anyone, or the likely reality is, if any Republican is going to beat Donald Trump in a primary, it's going to be Ron DeSantis. But the entire party apparatus needs to be behind him, and it's not. And the fact that they're now deciding, like, well, it's you know, going to be October 15th or 13th or 14th when they have this meeting, you know, that starts to come really late in the game to pump money into someone like DeSantis. I mean, DeSantis's cash on hand, the money in the bank, is now $5 million. Well, that's a lot of money to you and me in a campaign. That is nothing. DeSantis is not really going to be able to advertise on television. Uh, Trump's cash on hand is about $37 million. Now, this is according to both campaigns. We'll need to see the final campaign reports. There are associated political committees called super PACs that can dump in millions of dollars in advertising money. But DeSantis' super PAC is showing signs that it might be running out of money itself. So DeSantis has a real money problem. Now his people are going to go to these billionaires trying to hope for more money. But a lot of billionaires don't really like the conservative stuff he does, even though that's the stuff that can help him get votes. It's a, it's a sticky wicket. Yeah, I said back in uh, March, uh, I predicted that uh, that even with the spending cuts and the cutbacks that the DeSantis campaign had announced at that time, just looking at their burn rate, looking at their cash on hand, 
and looking at their rate of raise, I actually predicted that they would be out of money by around this time. I think I hit it on the head. Uh, mm-hmm. Budgeting for the long term in a presidential campaign uh, is absolutely crucial. It's something right. uh, that James A. Baker III did extremely skillfully for, for George H.W. Bush. Uh, it is not something the folks uh, who worked for Ronald Reagan did. Reagan, uh, in 1979 80, went through some very dry periods. There were actually periods where Governor and Mrs. Reagan were flying commercial uh, because uh, the coffers were bare. Reagan had this unique ability to go on television in a televised appeal uh, and pull in literally millions of dollars to replenish his coffers. Uh, In this case, I think uh, Governor DeSantis is at a huge disadvantage because there seems to be uh, no low-dollar recurring donor base for his candidacy. He has relied disproportionately uh, on wealthy people and bundlers, uh, and those people are very attuned to the polling numbers. Uh, Therefore, when things aren't going well, they start looking elsewhere. Where, And I really think you're going to see this in the wake of these recent developments in New York. I think Trump is about to have another massive low-dollar but high-net influx of cash just over the last three days. Well, it's certainly possible. One of the reasons that Trump decided to go to New York and sit in the civil fraud trial over his company was so that he could just kind of deliver his message over and over again, that this wasn't fraud because no one was defrauded. And the judge's ruling was terrible because he undervalued Mar-a-Lago by referencing some government property appraisal. It's kind of complicated stuff. But Trump drove it home. He's also wrapping everything together. He's making it all some big Democratic conspiracy. not saying I agree with that, to be clear, but that's what he's doing. And on DeSantis, you've hit on the head, uh, like a part of his problem, is small-dollar donations are sort of the, the Democratic version of contributing, right? Like, you know, the, the donor class are sort of, the, you know, if you were to think of, like, contributing money as a style of government. Well, the donors are the representatives, right? They're like kind of the politicians. They have the big checks, right? They can, they can give 3300 in cash hard, and they can give a whole bunch more to super PACs. The common people are the small-dollar donors. They chip in 10 20 at a time because you reach them, and they know, like, hey, I want to give to this person because I believe in this person, right? And... DeSantis has struggled to reach those small-dollar donors in the same way that he struggled to reach that sort of common man and common woman out there who are going to caucus and vote for him or caucus and vote and vote in the primaries uh, for the Republican ticket, whoever they, they want to have represent them. And his media strategy, DeSantis's media strategy, has not enabled him to reach these people. And if you, if you look at one of the other candidates in the race, Vivek Ramaswamy, that guy came out of nowhere. And, you know, he got up to, what, 8, 10, 12, 14 percent in some polls, because what he did is he had interesting and provocative things to say, and he just did all media everywhere, podcasts and blogs and television. Hell, he went on Don Lemon on CNN 
one morning and provoked a confrontation with Don Lemon that ultimately cost Don Lemon his job, right? And the reason it's good for candidates to do that, and Trump does that stuff as well, is that while the media might not be your friend, and while Republicans certainly deeply believe that, and Republicans don't necessarily, quote-unquote, believe the media, the fact is, it's like, there is a totality of stories. There's a critical mass of stories that and information that press into people like osmosis. And stories ultimately, in, in their view, become either good or bad. And DeSantis had done nothing to really earn any, quote-unquote, good stories. And he'd done a whole bunch of stuff to earn, quote-unquote, bad stories. So this kind of constant din of just negative coverage that surrounded DeSantis, who refused to sit for media interviews, by and large, except recently, and to do those small things of the, those kind of those small media market interviews cost him because like kind of the average person wasn't exposed to his message or any sort of positive coverage about his campaign. And here he is. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org. If you're just uh, tuning in, folks, uh, this is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio. Uh, You can listen to us at WABCRadio.com. Otherwise, don't touch that 770 AM dial. We're talking to Mark Caputo. Uh, national political reporter with The Messenger, uh, and we're talking about the 2024 presidential race. Uh, Let's go back, if we could, just for a second to Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Do you think that his 15 minutes are over? In other words, he was a hot commodity after the first debate, or I think he handled himself fairly well. Uh, The second debate, I said on this show, uh, it was like a food fight. I mean, it was like a train wreck. It wasn't even a high school debate. It was more like a junior high school debate. People yelling over each other, people uh, with their pre-scripted, carefully memorized lines that they're trying to make sound uh, spontaneous. Uh, it, I couldn't turn it off, and I'm a, I'm a political junkie. I love politics. I'll watch as much of it and listen to as much of it as I possibly can. Uh, but I did not think he fared as well uh, in this second debate. He's now got serious questions about whether he did or did not plagiarize speeches and key phrases uh, by Barack Obama, fairly or unfairly. That stuff is out there. People asking questions about his past association with the World Economic Forum uh, or uh, being a George Soros fellow. Uh, I I have a sense that his 
15 minutes in this race may have come and gone. But I'm more interested in what you think. I think it's probably true. And the reality is the person who has done the most to undo Vivek Ramaswamy or did the most on the debate stage was Nikki Haley. Like, she had that one line, it's like, you know, the more I listen to you, the dumber I get, right? And it just, there was just a, you know, like, ooh, a collective gasp from the debate crowd. And these things being live debates and having crowd reaction, that just kind of reinforces the the nature of that sort of attack. Uh, So, yeah, I, I, you know, I've always seen this as Trump is the big dog, the only other dog who could really knock him off, and it's going to be hard as DeSantis is just true across the board. So I never really saw Vivek Ramaswamy as having any legitimate shot of unseating Donald Trump. At the same time, I think the other person who, who shared my belief that Vivek Ramaswamy was not in it to win it to beat Donald Trump was Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he's run from a purely kind of modern PR standpoint, a great campaign. No one really knew who this guy was. He published a, a book talking about woke capitalism, the ills of it. He wanted to run for Senate in Ohio. Uh, he realized that that wouldn't quite work. He's got enough money from some venture capital deals, which, by the way, were pretty shady. And he wants to be a political figure and a player and a media character and a media figure. And this campaign has delivered that in spades to Ramaswamy. So, yeah, I think the moment of... This like, hey, this is this interesting new shiny object it has worn off. But ultimately, Vivek Ramaswamy, out of all the people who are probably going to lose this race, will come out in a much better position now than he was before. Well, as uh, former President Richard Nixon once told me, the only thing worse in politics than being wrong is being boring. And to his credit, <laughs> uh, Mr. Ramaswamy has never been boring. I think he has been very glib, very articulate. Uh, I I don't think it all holds together, uh, but uh, he has certainly made the race interesting. Showing up uh, in Miami outside the courtroom on the day that Donald Trump was arraigned and defending Trump, uh, that shows a keen reading of the polling and a very good understanding of where the grassroots uh, and base of the Republican Party is today. Uh, What is the upward trajectory for uh, Nikki Haley, in your opinion? I mean, there's a little more. If if it were a two-person race, I haven't seen a lot of polling on it. Haley would be losing to Trump just like everyone else would. Uh, But the reality is, is, you know, Haley... I, you know, Haley has had some sort of uh, beveled edges, like she hasn't been very clear where she is an abortion, for instance. And I'm just not sure that her record as South Carolina governor will translate well in a Republican primary if there's a, a spotlight on her, uh, in part because, you know, South Carolina is a relatively small state. And sure, yet has the first in the South primary, and they always talk about how they pick presidents uh, in the Republican primary. Uh, you know, she hasn't really been uh, fully scrutinized. And if that scrutiny comes, it's just going to be harder for her campaign to deal with. You know, but at the same time, these debates have inarguably been great for her. She knows how to handle herself. She's a, she's a good speaker. Uh, she knows how to really stick the knife in between the rib cage and pull it out as the opponent bleeds. 
And that's a skill that really no one else on that stage has. So kind of answering the question you implicitly asked, will she continue to surpass DeSantis in other polls beyond New Hampshire? I certainly think it's possible. I mean, you know, four of the last five polls in New Hampshire show that she's moved into second place against Trump, and DeSantis has fallen to third or worse. But she's still trailing Trump in New Hampshire, which is the first in the nation primary state, by what? 25 points, 30 points? That's just really difficult to overcome. The struggle about covering this primary as a political and campaigns reporter is the dynamics of the race haven't really changed. It's Trump and it's everyone else, and right now it's Trump by a mile. Uh, let's uh, switch to the Democrats here for a moment, if we may. Uh, yep. Do you uh, do you think Joe Biden will be ultimately be the nominee of the Democratic Party? Uh, not to be morbid about it, but yes, unless he dies or is hospitalized. Uh, remember this is... Joe Biden is a human being, right? He's a man. And all men, and so far it's only been men, who have sat in that Oval Office have sacrificed almost everything they can to sit there and will then sacrifice almost everything they can to remain there. I mean, just ask Donald Trump what happened on January 6th, right? Even Abraham Lincoln once wrote about how he wished he could be free of the affliction of wanting to remain in the White House. He like, wrote this in his memoirs in like, 1864. That's Abraham Lincoln. So to think that Joe Biden is somehow more zen than Abraham Lincoln, I, I, I don't buy. I, this guy's been running for president, and I'm 50, essentially, you know, since I was born. Anybody he'd ran three or four times, I can't even remember now. So yeah, definitely Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, again, unless his health conspires against it. Uh, do you think he could uh, stand up to uh, Donald Trump in a series of televised debates? I haven't spent time around Joe Biden now the way I did in 2020, so I don't know. But in 2020, what did come clear to me was Joe Biden on stage is not Joe Biden one-on-one. -on -one. And the more he's comfortable in being one-on-one -on -one instead of on stage, the better he is. So... You know, the 2020 Joe Biden, I would have told you, yes, uh, we'll have to see with the 2024 Joe Biden. Uh, so you uh, you don't make uh, much of these maneuverings uh, by uh, Gavin Newsom? No, I think Gavin Newsom, to circle back to the top of our conversation about Ron DeSantis, is an interesting contrast with Ron DeSantis, is that Ron DeSantis was heading into this election season knowing there was a big dog in, in his party who was essentially the incumbent. And, you know, the smart money would have told him to stay put. Be patient, young man. Wait your turn and get yourself into the right position, but don't run against the leader of your party. DeSantis didn't take that advice. He's a man, a young man in a hurry. Gavin Newsom did take that advice. So that conveys a lot of confidence. Like, he could have challenged uh, Joe Biden, Gavin Newsom could have, but he didn't. And the White House viewed him with a lot of suspicion initially because of all those moves he was doing. But he was essentially just filling a void of, for instance, taking on Ron DeSantis in 2022, which no one else was really doing, including DeSantis' own primary, or better said, general election opponent, Charlie Crist, during his reelection last year. And... Uh 
Newsom's, Newsom's favorability ratings are very high in the Democratic Party. The White House loves him. And so, yeah, I, I don't see him challenging uh, Joe Biden. Now, again, if Joe Biden's unable to run and Kamala Harris sort of, you know, is elevated into that role, well, that's, that's, that's a hard one to game out. All right. Well, I'm afraid we are out of time. Therefore, we have to wrap it up. I want to thank our friend Mark Caputo, a reporter with The Messenger, for joining us on The Roger Stone Show today. Mark, many thanks. Oh, thank you, Roger. I really appreciate it. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.